Okay, so this will be study number five, day number six. And of course, just for the record, we are here in Cambridge for a 10-day summer outreach at present. There are six of us that have taken the time out of their busy year to come and join us on the streets of uh, Cambridge. And I sat down about an hour ago to work out just how far we've all come from. And I can tell you that from Singapore to Cambridge, it is 6.7,000 miles from Barcelona to Cambridge, it is 974 miles. From Charlotte to Cambridge, it is 3,984 miles. And from Manchester to Cambridge, it is 181 miles. So in total, we've all travelled over 11,855 miles to get the word of God out. And I say that because we've met this town atheist, someone of an irritant, who... I won't say he's stalking us, but can't quite keep away. And he walked over to us yesterday, took Patrick for a coffee, and started off pretty well. But the moment they sat down, the moment they got onto the meat of the subject, the whole point of us being here, it uh, turned somewhat sour. And uh, insults were exchanged, not from Patrick, but from the town atheist. And the conversation was very abruptly ended. But such a person, like the town atheist, who's very quick to come over and put us right and take us to task, wouldn't walk to his local mosque, wouldn't uh, head off to the local Catholic church, wouldn't uh, locate a Masonic uh, temple and go into such a place and uh, challenge such people. We are very much easy targets, which is to be expected. But I guess if you have a belief, then really you should put your money where your mouth is and you should uh, clear 10 days to do what we are doing. As we arrived in the city centre yesterday mid-afternoon, a chap walked over to us and he said, uh, by the way, I got a vision yesterday of Jesus. He appeared to me and he described Jesus, quote-unquote, that appeared to this chap. And as he was sharing his accounts of witnessing a vision of Jesus, he was puffing away on a cigar, had very strong uh, aftershave. And I thought to myself, had I seen Jesus, I doubt I would be puffing away on a cigar I doubt I'd be wearing very strong aftershave. I doubt I'd be casually walking around the town discussing what I'd just seen. Had I seen a vision of Jesus, I guess I would be running around town, calling on people to repent, calling on people to get saved. This guy very casually walked over to us, wanted to share his vision, quote-unquote, with us. And as far as I could tell, he wasn't a changed man. In fact, he even blasphemed a few moments into his witness encounter. But that's what happens when you do street work. You can never guess who's going to come around the corner. Like I said uh, yesterday, I was able to speak to some Jewish gentleman, to a Baha'ist woman, to a new Christian, a Calvinist, who was studying for the ministry. Just three people, and I'm sure there are many others that I can't think of as I sit down this morning. But for this morning, what I want to try and do for our fifth group Bible study which, like I say, is day six, is look at the Word of God, the written Word of God. And if we go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, I want to take a very leisurely look at the Scripture, and uh, not sure how this will turn out, and just see what the Scripture says about the Scripture. Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 18, look please at verse 19. And it shall come to pass, that whosoever will not hearken unto my words which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So the Lord starts back in the day by revealing himself 
to people, as I've been saying over the last few studies, perhaps by a dream or two, perhaps by a vision or two. And he would do so because he wants to reveal himself to us. He could have sat back and not revealed himself to us, which some people would have us believe, but he decided to get involved with his creation. Almighty God is very much a hands-on God. And here, 19, and it shall come to pass, and yet nothing comes to pass in hell, that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, picturing a prophet, picturing someone sent on behalf of the Saviour, and an apostle, once again, is somebody who was sent. I will require it of him. So we stand on a street corner. We give out tracts. We speak to people. And the town atheist comes over. Or a Catholic comes over. Or a Muslim comes over. Or an agnostic comes over. And they start to argue with us. They start to uh, clash with us. And what we say to them doesn't have any... Uh, place in their hearts they don't want to receive it in which case here the lord is going to require it of them on top of that he's going to require it of his messengers which goes back to our responsibility to be faithful in season and out of season it's very easy to get saved join a church or become a part of a fellowship and that's all you ever do you meet two times a week maybe three times a week maybe four times a week and after your church closes its doors Back into the world you go, and you don't do anything until you meet again. But that's not what the Word of God speaks about. In Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 3, the early church, being Jewish of course, would meet every day to break bread, to enjoy a meal, because they were isolated, they were cut off from friends and family, and it was very important for them to come together. We've lost that today. In fact, this chap that I spoke to with one of the sisters a few days ago, was uh, pro the paid ministry and he got his bible out and went to first corinthians 9 which they always do and started to read it to us and i said to him but that piece of scripture is speaking about an apostle is speaking about an evangelist a pastor is not an evangelist and an evangelist is not a pastor and i said to him incidentally the one man uh, paid ministry yes it was coming in at the end of the first century hence the term nicolation or Nicolaitans, to conquer the people, but it didn't really take off into the second century, going into the third, fourth, and right up until the current day. The early church were run by men, and if you think of that text uh, where it says uh, the elders are worthy of double honour, you are automatically reminded of the uh, scripture from uh, Exodus 20, to honour your parents. You give double honour to the elders, not via uh, way of a salary, although you can give a gift if you want to, but via the way of respect. 18, 19, one more time and I move on. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So our job is to preach the gospel. Our job is to share the gospel. And that's it. We don't go back and forth over the same old ground with the same old people. Because if we do so, we are wasting our time. We are wasting the Lord's time. And on top of that, such people are going to be further accountable to the Lord for what we have told them. Go to Jeremiah chapter 6, please. Jeremiah chapter 6. And in Jeremiah chapter 6, take a look, please, at verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. So it's bad enough to reject the scripture. It's uh, bad enough to reject our witness but on top of that the word of the lord 
is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it, which is pretty much typical of most people today. To whom shall I speak and give warning, which is what we are doing, that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, feeding into Jesus, that they had ears but couldn't hear, they had eyes but could not see, and they cannot hearken, they cannot hear it, they cannot receive it, because Satan has blinded their minds. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. So they hate the written word. They hate the verbal word. They hate what we are trying to do. And yet we have to push on. Because if we don't, the Lord will hold us accountable. And on top of that, who else would do this? In fact, we arrived a couple of days ago. And it was pouring with rain. It was cold. It was windy. And I said to somebody, uh, but nobody else is here. If we weren't here, if all six of us were not standing here on a street corner, holding up our banner giving out tracks, which incidentally are going very well, praise the Lord. Nobody else would be here to do what we are doing. In fact, one gentleman, I think, told Patrick that, as far as he was aware, no other church group works the town, which is very surprising because most churchy people want to push their church. But according to this old gentleman, and we have no reason to doubt what he told us, no other church group works the town, which may explain some of the hostility that we have experienced. Go to Psalm 33, please. Psalm 33. Look at verse 4, if you will. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He doesn't play games with people. If he makes a statement, he stands by it. And when we make a statement via scripture, we stand by it. If we were to say to somebody that should they believe in the Lord, should they trust in the Lord, they are saved. That's just uh, all there is to it. We're not playing games with people. We're not trying to get people to join our church or our system and eventually give them the goodies. We want to tell people right there, right then on the street. For the word of the Lord is right and all his works are done in truth. It's very difficult to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a skeptic, and many are, and still find fault in him. Sure, you'll find some people who will criticize his tone, his demeanor, um and his indifference to other people's worship or false gods. But for the most part, it's very difficult to criticize somebody who would heal people, who would walk on the water, who would raise the dead, who would feed 20,000 people. That's pretty tough to criticize. I'm sure some people would, but it's unusual. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. Going back to prophets, going back to apostles, going back to holy men of God, and also some women... And yes, there are some women in scripture that were raised up to do a great work, normally due to the fact that men were spineless or incapable of taking on any kind of responsibility. Go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, which is the longest uh, psalm. In fact, I believe it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And look, if you will, at... Verse 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So when we get to glory, first of all, we go to the judgment seats and we are given up to five crowns. And on top of that, we will be judged for our service to the Lord. As I came down the train, I was looking at one commentary which spoke about the judgment seats of the Lord. And the writer was suggesting that our uh, carnal sins done in the flesh after we get saved 
are not uh, brought up at the judgment seat. I'm not overly sure about that. I'm not overly sure. I know from uh, Luke 12, there was a mention of whips, whippings, chastisements. And yes, it would be nice to spiritualize such a passage. But I'm not overly sure that such a statement is correct. Paul does go on to say that the judgment seat of the Lord is a terror of the Lord. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So, of course, we go into eternity and the books are opened. And one book which will be opened will be the word of God. And we will sit at the feet of the Saviour, perhaps, and he will read the scripture to us. He will open the scripture to us. He will explain deeper things to us. Not one man has all of the truth. In fact, even John Calvin, of all people, would make that statement that there isn't one man who has all of the truth, who got everything down. And that's a very honest statement to make. But the scripture is forever, eternal, and it is settled in heaven. So what we read about uh, here and now during the church age is only probably a fraction of what will be revealed to us in eternity Psalm 119, Psalm 119, look, if you will, at verse 140. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. When I first got saved 15 years ago, I spent a lot of time, and I mean a lot of time, reading the scripture. And I just fell in love with the scripture. And I said to myself at the end of 2016, how about reading the scripture through in a month? How about reading it through every day of the week for an entire month? Is it going to be possible to read the scripture through in a month? And I'd heard of one guy that had done just that. And not only had he read the Bible through in a month, he read it through twice in a month. And I thought, how could that be possible? And it turned out that, uh, from memory now, let's see now, if you read 45 pages a day, 46 pages a day, every day for 31 days, you will complete the entire bible in a month if you read 86 pages a day every day for 31 days you can go through the bible twice in a month so i said to myself let's have a go at this let's give this a crack let's see if i can read the entire bible through in a month so january came around 2017 and i sat down and i looked at genesis chapter one and i started to read and it was quite a challenge and for the first four or five days, I was pretty much on target. But day six, day seven, day eight, day nine, day ten, I started to fall slightly behind. And I thought to myself, I'm 30 pages behind schedule. And I got to finish the task. Around that time, people were emailing me saying that they were reading along with me, which was great. Some people were wanting to read along with me, but were late joining me. And therefore I said to them, well, don't bother now, it's too late. We're now halfway through the month maybe try next month well i began january the 1st 2017 and by january the 31st 2017 i finished it was quite a task but it was a great blessing so when it says here verse 140 thy word is very pure absolutely i can testify to that therefore thy servant loveth it i can completely agree with such a statement to love the lord of course to love the scripture is also uh to be uh, commended you know you get saved you want to grow in grace you have to read the scripture in fact a lady walked over to us i think our first or second day here from uh, texas and she told us that her husband is a theologian and we think she is probably a charismatic and she was speaking to us about prayer and this and that 
And I thought to myself, I wonder if she speaks in tongues. And I said to her, do you speak in tongues? Well, yes, actually, I do. I tried it this morning. I thought, here we go. And um, I said to her, do you read the scripture? And she said, no, with a sort of fixed grin. Is that important? And I said to her, yes, you should read it every day. I thought, why is it that somebody who is saved doesn't read the scripture every day? When I got saved, I read it every day. But for this particular woman, she didn't seem to have a great love for the scripture. It's like if I wrote you a love letter, or two, or three, and I gave it to you, and I asked you, by the way, did you read my love letter? And you said, no, I haven't had time, I'm too busy. It would kind of offend me. Well, the same is true of the Lord. He's written you 66 love letters in the Holy Bible, and he expects you to read it. He expects you to read them, he expects you to memorize them, and if you can, he expects you to obey them to the letter. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, Look at verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. I love that. Thy word is true from the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It just tells you what it is. It just tells you how it is. It doesn't say, this may sound somewhat of a stretch to you. This may sound somewhat... Uh, hard to comprehend, it just tells you. And you either believe it or you don't. I can't tell an atheist on the street uh, to believe this. I can't help an atheist to understand this. I can't help somebody who doesn't want to receive this to receive it. We can't do that. The word of God says, this is how it is. This is what happened. You either receive it or you reject it. Thy word is true from the beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. What a statement. And yet most people... Most Christians, if they are even saved, will read such a passage and say, well, that was for then. We live under grace, which is true. But by saying that, they completely obliterate such a statement. And of course, this statement made right in the middle of your Bible is not only concerning what was written before, but what will come after. One more time and I'll move on. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of the righteous judgments endureth forever. So the Lord returns, he starts his thousand year reign on the new earth, and for us, we will be in New Jerusalem, and a lot of the Old Testament, a lot of the rituals, practices, ways of life are going to be re-implemented. We don't quite understand that, but the scripture makes it clear that what took place back in the Old Testament will partly be repeated during the millennium. Go to John chapter 6. A Catholic guy came over to us, I think it was Sunday afternoon, and he was very proud of his church. He was very proud of his Eucharist, which of course is an idol, and he was somewhat uh, full of himself. And we got on to the Mass and the Church of Rome, tradition, so on and so forth. And John chapter 6 got mentioned concerning the Eucharist, which isn't actually mentioned here in John chapter 6. In fact, John chapter 6 concerns Jesus speaking to the Jews in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus was not speaking to the Gentiles or the church. He was speaking to Jews in Capernaum under the law. John chapter 6, John chapter 6, look at verse uh, 63, if you will. It is a spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirits and they are life. Let's say you could eat Jesus. Let's say you could physically eat him. Let's say you could physically drink him. Is it going to help you? No, of course not. Number one, to eat someone else 
is obviously wicked. It's cannibalism. Number two, if you could physically eat him, how could it profit you? It is a spirit that quickeneth. The spirit makes you alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. Also going back to grace being a gift. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirits and they are life. He's speaking in metaphorical terms. And it does puzzle me sometimes as to why Catholics will jump on John chapter 6, take it literally, and I mean literally, and yet you take him over to Matthew chapter 5. If you lust, cut your hands off. If you lust, pluck your eyes out. Um, and other parts of scripture like, I am the door, I am the bread. I'll go back to the Old Testament. I have eagle's wings. Such passages, they take in a figurative sense, which you have to do, of course. But when you come to, or when they come to John chapter 6, they take this literally and they force it to mean what it doesn't. That, of course, is suicidal exegesis. One more time and I'll move on. It is a spirit that quickeneth the just for the unjust, that he may bring us to God. The flesh profiteth nothing. Your works can't save you. Your flesh can't profit you anything. The words that I speak unto you, they heard the words in an audible sense, and we get the words in a written sense in Scripture. They are spirits and they are life. And that's where we get the expression how words hurt. Your words can cut you down. By your words you are justified, and by your words you are damned. So when I read this piece of scripture, I think to myself, what a great scripture. And I think to myself, what a great shame it is that over a billion Catholics are trusting in this chapter alone and a literal interpretation from this chapter alone for their salvation. And yet they are inconsistent when it comes to Matthew 5 and other parts of the scripture where Jesus spoke about being a temple and this and that. They don't say he's a literal building. They know that such a statement is to be taken in a figurative sense. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. The Catholics believe that Peter was the first Pope. And yet Peter at best was an elder. Peter was very busy uh, in and around Jerusalem. Probably made it to uh, Babylon in uh, Iraq. In fact his second epistle is signed off from Babylon. Did he get to Rome? I don't believe so. In fact, there was a book which came out back in the 1940s, written by a couple of Jesuits, which made the case that he died in Jerusalem, was buried in Jerusalem. And when that book came out, the Vatican jumped on it. They said, pulp the book, burn it up, because it goes against the myth that Simon Peter made it to Rome. First Peter, First Peter chapter 1, look, if you will, at verse 23, please. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So Jesus is the living word of God, and the scripture is the written word of God. You can fall in love with the written word of God. You can fall in love with the living word of God. You can get saved by believing the written word of God. You can get saved by believing on the living word of God. Sometimes you can't separate the two. In fact, look at 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth of the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. If you speak to a hyper-dispensationalist, they will say that 
The term born again has no reference to us. The term born again is only for the Jews. And there are a lot of people that hold to such a statement. And you say to them, are you born again? No, I'm not born again, they say. I'm not a Jew. Dangerous statement. Dangerous belief to take. If you're not born again, you're not saved. In fact, go to John chapter 1. Everything in scripture has to be read, of course, and carefully applied. And while it's true that not everything in scripture is doctrinally relevant to us, everything in scripture is at least spiritually relevant to us. John chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 1, uh, look, if you will, please, at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we can see very clearly and very quickly, without any confusion, that if you receive him, verse 12, which of course is via grace, you have power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Going back to Jesus as the living word of God, going back to the scripture as the written word of God. 13, which were born not of blood. You weren't born a saved person, nor of the will of the flesh. You didn't will it to be saved. It's a gift given to you via the Lord, nor of the will of man. It didn't come from a friend or relative, but of God, born of God, born again. And John chapter 3, the Lord made it very clear three times how you must be born again. So when I look at this piece of scripture, and also Paul speaks about uh, being a new creature from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, I can't help but think to myself, how can anybody take any other interpretation from this? You must be born again. Being born again, First Peter one twenty three, not of corruptible seed, also in reference to works, church service, ritual, so on and so forth, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. This book is alive. The more I read this book, the more I see things. In fact, when I sat down back in January to read the entire Bible through in a month, which, like I said, was very difficult, I saw things which I hadn't seen before. And I made one mistake. What I should have done when I was reading it was to make notes. But I was too busy reading it, not studying it. And I said to myself, what I will try and do, uh, March, uh, was to sit down and read it again. It didn't happen. And here we are in June, and I'm due to go through the Bible again. Maybe I'll do it next month in July, I don't know. And this time, if I can, uh, make some notes. Go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And look, if you will, please, at verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive of meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. So like I say, this book will save you, this book will damn you. How you handle the scripture will be partly down to yourself, and most people give the book lip service. The Catholics say, well, we wrote the Bible, and they say that the church is the, uh, the only group, the only uh, body, capable of reading it and teaching it and yet they don't believe in the bible they don't believe in any of the bible they cherry pick what they want they take that peter and upon this rock will i build my church and they take other parts of the scriptures to uh, use for their own uh, benefit but when it comes to a word by word study when it comes to reading the scripture verse by verse chapter by chapter book by book they have no interest 
latter parts of 21. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. I can't stand arrogance. I can't stand these textual critics that come along and say, well, the King James was all very well, uh, but we can no longer trust it. In fact, yesterday afternoon, we went to parts of Cambridge University and we found ourselves at the legal wing of Cambridge University. And I asked the uh, librarian or one of the staffers, are there any rare Bibles here? And she sort of looked at me like I was a, a moron, sort of grinned at me like I was an idiot or more of a smirk, really. But I didn't realise we were actually in a legal department. I just thought we were going to the main library in Cambridge. And I was very mindful yesterday that the King James translators were from Oxbridge. They were the best of the best. If they went to, or if half of them went to Oxford, the other half went to Cambridge. And I thought somewhat naively that the library that we all went to yesterday would have at least one rare Bible, like a Cambridge version of the King James Bible, maybe from 1611. And I was gravely mistaken. But I received the scripture with meekness, the engrafted word, because it saved my soul. And for those who are sitting around this table this morning, it has saved your souls as well. That's why we love the scripture. That's why we defend the scripture. Go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 17, if you will. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sights of God speak we in Christ. You get saved, like I say. You want to deepen your relationship with the Lord. You read the scripture and you read it. And you memorize it. And if you are able to, if you are blessed, you start to teach it, which is great. For we are not as many, not just a handful, which corrupt the word of God, the written word of God. On top of that, the living word of God. People said Jesus wasn't almighty God. People said that Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't almighty God. People say that we can't trust the scripture. People say that there's no evidence that Jesus ever lived or died. And was resurrected. And of course they are ignorance of history. But as of sincerity. But as of God. Going back to John chapter 1. Born of God. In the sight of God. We are representing him. Here now physically. And in a way that I don't quite understand. We are in heaven in a spiritual sense. Representing him in his presence. In the sight of God. Speak we in Christ. We speak in Christ. We speak to people in the place of Christ. Never mind the vicar of Rome, the so-called Holy Father. He doesn't speak for anyone. In fact, he speaks for his father, the devil. We are frontline soldiers for the Lord. And like I say, we've traveled nearly 12,000 miles to make this uh, outreach a reality. And it continues to be a great blessing. Go to Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy Chapter 3. If you're saved, you should love the scripture. And if you are a Bible teacher, this is a great verse for you. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 14, if you will. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What a statement. From a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. This is aimed at Timothy. Timothy was a Jew. 
from Acts 16. His uh, mother was a believer. His grandmother was a believer, but his father was not. And he was what you may call a backslidden Jew before the Apostle Paul met up with him. And Paul says this, that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which means that Timothy had the Holy Scriptures, not the originals, of course, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So you get the scripture, you read it, you may be five, maybe six, you may be seven, you may be eight, you may be nine, you may be ten, who knows? And if you believe it, this book will make you wise unto salvation, meaning you can get saved. Through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished under all good works. If you are a brother in the Lord and you have any kind of teaching ministry or you believe in the word of God and the Lord has put it on your heart to teach the word of God, this is all you need. Thy word is true from the beginning and everyone of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. All scripture, Genesis 1, Revelation 22, is given by inspiration of God. God breathed. Nobody sat down and said, let's write the Bible. Let's have some fun. No, they were inspired. And the scripture was breathed by the pen of the writers and is profitable for doctrine, which is the most important thing after you are saved. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God, not the woman of God, that the man of God may be perfect, like complete. Thoroughly, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You get your hands in this book, you believe it, you study it, this is all you need. And yet that is lost when it comes to the Catholic Church, they don't believe it. The Church of England don't believe it. The uh, Greek and Russian Orthodox churches don't believe it. Everyone and anyone outside of Bible believers reject such a statement. And you hear from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures, and as such, you are Wise unto salvation through faith, being a free gift, which is found exclusively in Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, look at verse 14, if you will. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be thou ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. That man over there isn't an apostle. That man over there speaks for himself that man over there is a servant of satan and such a statement of course comes from the devil and it goes back to the town atheist locking horns with us of whom be thou where also verse 15 for he hath greatly withstood our words as we arrived in town yesterday afternoon the town atheist like i say came back over towards us wanted to have a second clash with us and this time with one of the sisters and we were giving out tracks, and it was a bit of a bottleneck where we were standing. And as we tried to give a tract out to a passerby, the passerby said, what's this? And we said, it's a gospel message. And he said, yes, it's Christian rubbish. He was trying to oppose us. He was greatly withstanding our words, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. And as a result, quite possibly, he stopped that person from taking a tract yesterday, who may have read it and got saved. We don't know. If you don't believe in the scripture, stand aside. If you don't appreciate what we are doing, fair enough. This is a free country, just about. 
Go off and do something else. Take up golf or something. Don't get in our way. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. Of course, Paul had the sign gifts. And yet, unlike some of the Old Testament greats, he didn't cut this guy down. I mean, physically. He turned the other cheek. The Lord reward him according to his works. Going back to Michael arguing with Lucifer over the body of Moses. And he says to Lucifer, the Lord rebuke thee. Going back to the need for us to turn the other cheek. Not to get into a physical altercation. And if you can, and I'm guilty of this, not to raise your voice on the street. It's very difficult. When this guy first came over to us, we spent 30 minutes with him. And he really got my back up. You know, I was arguing with him probably too much. Old nature, of course. And yes, I'm sure John, the son of Zebedee, also had quite a temper on him. He's called the sons of thunder. Of whom be thou where also. Look out for him, Timothy. For he hath greatly withstood our words. Like this chap from yesterday, sent along from the devil, no doubt. But Paul's words were inspired. The words of Jesus were inspired. The words of Jeremiah and Deuteronomy were inspired. And this is the power of the scripture. This is how serious this is. When we preach the gospel, when we open our Bibles, when we try and explain the Bible to people that are walking by, it's imperative that they listen to what we say, and it's imperative that we do the best we can when it comes to the scripture. Because it can save, and it can also damn. Go to Revelation 22, and I will close. Now, Revelation 22, a very... uh, troubling piece of scripture and I spent several weeks reading this piece of scripture and I'm not sure how my interpretation will go uh, this morning but right at the end of the last book of the entire bible John tells you from verse 18 revelation 22 for I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book if any man shall add unto these things God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. This book is dynamite. This book has been banned in nine countries. If you were to fly to at least three Islamic countries and if you were to go through immigration and if they were to find that you are carrying a King James Bible, they would confiscate it. This book is dynamite. This book is very controversial. This book tells you how this world began. This book tells you that you are accountable to the creator of this book, but also the creator of the world. This book tells you that one day the creator of the world will become flesh, would walk amongst us, would tell us what we needed to know on top of what we'd already been told. And this book tells us that If you mess with this book, there are consequences, eternal consequences. 18. For I, John, testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. Testify. Very technical word. You're going to testify in court tomorrow? You're going to testify at your tribunal tomorrow? If any man or woman shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. In the context concerning the tribulation, of course, many plagues in the tribulation, not for the church, but for the world. And if you think what uh, Moses would experience back in the Old Testament was pretty serious, it'd be far worse, far more serious for the tribulation. And if any man, verse 19, or woman, 
shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy. God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. You've got three dire warnings on top of the plagues from verse 18. And I think for me, the real clincher here, the verse or the part of this verse which really helps me understand this dire warning is the reference to the holy city being New Jerusalem. An unsaved man is just that, he's unsaved. An unsaved man is not going into the holy city. But if you're saved, you are going into the holy city. If you speak to a Calvinist and ask him or her to deal with these verses, to explain them, they struggle. Because for them, they believe that Christ died just for the elect. And therefore the elect are eternally secure because he died for them. And therefore, when they get to this passage, they say, well, this is obviously aimed at somebody who was never saved to begin with. If you speak to a non-Calvinist, somebody who holds to conditional security, and you ask him or her to deal with this piece of scripture, they will say, well, there you are, you see. You can lose your salvation. Because once again, holy city, new Jerusalem, is only for the redeemed. It's not for the unredeemed. It's not for the unsaved. So verses 18 and 19 give the impression of the loss of your part in the book of life. Now, if the book of life is a lamb's book of life, then you've got a problem. Because to have your name taken out of the book of life, if it is in reference to the lamb's book of life, has got to be in reference to your salvation. If it's not the lamb's book of life, if it's just the book of life, which all of our names are found in when we get born, then okay, fine. But it's still serious, because what the Lord is saying is, if you mess with the scripture, if you add or subtract and they've all done it, going back to Westcott and Hort, if not further before that, then you are in dangerous ground. Or look at it this way. Let's say you are an actor, and you've got a part in a film, you've got a part in a play, and you turn up and you start participating in the film or the play, and the director says to you, just to let you know that we've cut your part. You say to yourself, what does that mean, you cut my part? It means you're fired. You don't say to the director, should I come back next week? You don't say to the scriptwriter, so does that mean I, I got a month off work? No, you're fired. To have your part cut, to have your part taken away, means you are fired. means you're finished. Holy city, things written in this book, plagues that are written therein, man or woman, anytime, at any place, under any condition, if such, adds to this word, which is true from the very beginning, they risk being condemned i'll give you one more scripture which may help us with this go to john chapter 8 i don't claim to have all the answers and i don't want to go on record and say that you can lose your salvation because i don't believe that but there's one verse from john 8 which perhaps maybe might help us out with this very troublesome passage john chapter 8 john uh, chapter 8 Take a look, if you will, at verse 47. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you're not of God. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not. Why? Because you're not of God. It'd be great to say that the warning given in Revelation 22 is aimed at those that were never saved to begin with. Or if you were to say to somebody, if you die without Christ, you can't be redeemed. You can't be later saved. Or the Hebrews text, if we sin willfully, 
after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there's no more sacrifice of sins aimed at the Jews, you might have some way around this difficult passage. But I think what the Lord is telling us here from uh, John 8, 47, makes it very clear that they wouldn't hear his words because they were not of God. They weren't born again. They were physical descendants of the prophets and patriarchs, but they weren't born again. Like most people that we meet on the streets, like that chap who told us that he'd seen a vision of the Lord and was puffing away on a cigar, there was no sign of uh, the new birth there. There was no sign of reverence of the Lord, fear of the Lord. There was no sign of a changed life. He was just wanting to make a statement. And I would say that he isn't of the Lord. He hasn't heard the Lord's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. But he that is of God heareth God's words. You hear them, you believe them, you love them, and you don't correct them. But if you correct them, if you mess with them, if you seek to undermine people's faith in the scripture, which most people that claim to be saved do, then I would suggest to you, Revelation 22, 18 to 19, you are candidates for having your name removed from the book of life, out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book, and on top of that, the plagues, verse 18, which would suggest to me that this is also aimed at those in the tribulation, those that go through the tribulation. But again, looking at other parts of scripture, I'm not wanting to uh, take liberties and suggest that it's only aimed at those that are still to come. In fact, most dispensationalists will kick these difficult passages into the tribulation because they don't know how to deal with them. And they say, for example, uh, Matthew 24, he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved, tribulation. And they say that if you don't keep the law during the tribulation, you lose it. And they say that you have to keep the Ten Commandments in the tribulation to be saved. I don't believe that at all. I believe a simple reading of the scripture, understanding what the Lord said in the scripture, should be clear enough for any of us to comprehend the warning Found one more time from Psalm 119, verse 116. Thy word is true from the beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. You can trust this book for your salvation. You can trust the Lord to atone for your sins. On top of that, if you stumble, and you will. If you sin, and you will. Confess your sins to him, and he will restore you. It is possible that if you have been a Bible corrector, and you've come to your senses and you confess your sins or sin to the Lord, First John chapter 1, he will cleanse you, he will restore you. But on top of that, I have no more light to shine on Revelation 22, 18 to 19. And therefore, I will close this message and simply call it the Word of God.